0: Welcome to the Cosmopolycast, and I'm Mo. Let's jump in, because today we're taking on Russia. And let me introduce everyone. First off, we've got Vladislav Davidson. He's a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, and author, Vladislav, of many, many articles that I've read on various publications. So welcome. We've also got Scott Abel. Hello, Scott, how are you? Good. Good. You're in Tallinn under lockdown. All right, Scott, you teach communication just like I do here in Siena. You instead teach at the Estonian Business School, and you're also a journalist. And we also have President Tomas is back. Hello, President. Hi. How about that moose? Hi. That's why actually we've invited you back. We just want to know about the moose. If no, you had they're a moose dropped, sighting. They're
1: all over my, my park.
0: And then we've got lovely Claire. Hi, Claire. How are you? Hello, Monique. Thank you everyone for coming. And John. Hi, John. How's it? How are things going in Austria?
2: I just had a big anti-corona demonstration today but
0: usual tell us about that
2: No, it's usual every weekend the the right wing ships okay. and a lot of people from the provinces to come in and protest against mask rules and vaccination and, and also the government
1: which is also right wing yes On, it's also ex- right
2: wing but not right wing enough to what extent
3: people. do you think they're being stirred up directly by the kremlin good
2: question it's probably some of that it so also plays into the government's hands, not to get into, too much into Austrian politics, but the way that, uh, remember how Orban used Jobbik as the right-wing specter to keep people in line with Fidesz going further to the right. I feel that Kurtz might be doing the same with the FPO. So he doesn't mind the FPO being radical right.
1: Yeah, that
3: would be exactly the, the Orban-Jobbik yeah. pattern. There is same a lot game.
1: Of overlap between the memes created by the Internet Research Agency in Petersburg and the line pushed by Russian, uh, various Russian outlets, including Sputnik, and the memes and lines that are used by the not-so-bright hard right across Europe, as well as in the United States, against masks, against uh, vaccinations, especially right. against Western vaccinations. I mean, it's pretty pretty clear.
2: Right, the connection to the, the Austrian right wing. Well, they call themselves the Freedom Party, and and Russia is not even a secret, because everyone's well aware, right? When the FPO had the party members, foreign minister, she actually invited Putin to her wedding, notoriously.
3: And got down on her knees
2: for him. Yes. Yes, we saw that. Very close, Ties.
4: Russian companies lately, one of the oil companies.
2: Yes, at least she got a a board seat.
0: Actually, there's, speaking of, let's say, Russian propaganda. This morning, I read an article about disinformation pro-Kremlin narratives, Bring Donbass Home. Ukraine is preparing a genocide. Ukraine is preparing an attack against Donbas. Ukraine is shelling villages, killing children. Since this morning, we are returning the fire. Now, this is obviously Russian propaganda, and we know that. But let's get into Ukraine and what's happening at the border. Is this an escalation that is going towards war, or is it just because they've got some unresolved, the Russians I'm talking about, they've got unresolved domestic problems? Are they motivated by something else? Some analysts are saying you're trying to test the West. What's going on?
1: Well, clearly they're really ramping up the jingoist war rhetoric internally in Russia for on Russian television, as if this has to be the uh, even Carnegie Moscow's their resident think tankist on this issue took a very tanky position that uh, the Ukrainians are provoking the the Russians by. By sanctioning Medvedchuk, who's just an oligarch. But social media is full and full of videos of tanks all moving toward Ukraine. They're hauling them into Crimea. They're bringing them into Donbass. They're actually doing it north of Ukraine, along the border there. I mean, they're certainly making a big show of it.
0: Yeah. You want to jump in?
1: Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, by the way. You know, the
5: Ukrainians made a decision in the, in the last, let's say, three months that they were no longer going to be looking for a deal with the Kremlin. Young President Zelensky came to power thinking that he could get a deal with the Russians. And he's not a particularly ideological guy, so he, he didn't really care what kind of deal it was. He thought that there was a deal in the making and to be found. He also came to power on an anti-corruption platform. The anti-corruption is a different issue, but after about 18 months of dropping approval ratings, and he is an actor and a media man, that's what he cares about. He decided that look, obviously, there's not going to be a deal to be found here. And he started eliminating internal Russian proxy television, political actors, propaganda structures within Ukraine. And certain people were sanctioned. That's not always a useful tool to use for long-term getting people out of Ukrainian politics. But they use pretexts to sanction, I mean, this is a good thing, to uh, Medvedchuk's television stations. Of course, the gentleman is Putin's proxy in Ukraine. Then they started going after the money that was propping up the uh, pro-Russian political parties, the fifth column political parties within Ukraine. And basically, they started getting rid of all sorts of pro-Russian stuff inside of Ukraine after, for a long time, not cooperating, but dealing with it. So the Russians are in a decision matrix where they have a new presidential administration and then they have their own internal problems, but also they're just reacting to positive Ukrainian pushback against their political forces inside the country.
0: John, do you agree with that? that they're just reacting to, to things? Or is there other designs, let's say, that Putin may have on the area?
5: You no, know, it's
2: interesting. There is, I think, a school of thought, which I'm somewhat intended to agree with at the moment, that there is, uh, it, it's a moment for Russia to test the new administration. They see Biden coming in. Biden you know, called Putin a killer, which got Putin all offended. And I saw a lot of Russian social media saying, that, you know, if America is gonna put up, then they should, you know, don't talk, live up to your words. I think Russia believes that America will not live up to its words, and so this is a good time for them to test America's uh, willingness to engage. And also, you've got a Europe that is dealing with corona that is divided. There's a lot of internal friction. So maybe the Russians see, if there was a time to move against Ukraine, better now than, than to wait. So this is like opportunism. The geopolitical picture is not going to prove for them. Yeah, Thomas. Tomas?
1: Yes, thank you. I mean, there's an even uh, a, a theory that would go beyond that, which has also been pushed around that, in fact, that Russia is so irrelevant right now to the primary concerns of the Biden administration that they want to show that you can't get away without us. And so this has been a consistent theme in being a nuisance. I mean, because basically, Russia is a nuisance power. And intelligence community this past week, and the United states just came out with a with a paper basically saying the primary threat to the world and to liberal democracy and the United States is China. And Russia is kind of like this. Nah, you know, okay, they're kind of a nuisance. And of course, whenever this happens, or when Obama said they're just a JV player. Then they go and do something to show that, no, 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 you know, we're big, we're big, we are important country, USA must deal with us. And then they do something.
2: Thomas, that's a good, there's actually a very good graphic, which we can link to when people come after they listen to the podcast. I can't remember who put it out, but it was linked by uh, Adam Tooze, who's a very well-known economist. And it was a graphic showing on one hand, relative importance of countries, as far as international trade, this big U.S. circle big China circle, really large Germany, you know, UK, Italy, Korea, Russia's tiny. Then you had importance of finance as world financial centers. Again, US is huge. No, the UK is big, China, Singapore, Russia, again, nothing. Just tells you how small how insignificant Russia really is in terms of the world economy at this point.
1: Like Estonia.
3: But Russia's, Russia's definitely punching above its class in its ability to screw other countries up, it's a lot easier to destroy than it is to build. And Russia is very good at screwing things up. If that's your, your motivation to act in, in the world, and it seems to be Russia's, it mm-hmm. can be very effective. And by the um, way, I think Obama called ISIS the JV team. Scott, you wanted to say something? Yeah,
4: I have been trying to figure out what's been going on. You know, I've been relying on mainstream media to explain why now for several weeks and not really getting an answer so i do what i do is talk to people and so i contacted a estonian parliamentarian who has deep ties with russia deep ties with the former soviet union states and i asked him what's going on and what he told me is that there are no reasons for what's happening right now every reason is irrational but there are factors involved that are pushing towards this result and he mentioned the duma elections coming up in september and when your popularity is cratering as putin has been polling very badly a a little short war victorious war can boost that he also mentioned that the donbass region is suffering economically it's also been a little bit more independent even during the soviet era that region was a little more independent And they've come to a realization that they don't want any kind of autonomy within Ukraine anymore. That was his spin on it. And that some of this is homegrown in the Donbass, that they just want to move on. And through my personal connections, I know some people from Donetsk and I was shocked when they told me that they voted uh, in the referendum positively for Russia. Because ever since Ukraine started pushing a language law, it was about seven years ago, where Ukrainian would be the uh, main language language. uh, for the country. Yeah, that has precipitated a series of events. You know, Kiev has always been pro-EU, most of the region around Kiev has been pro-EU, but the Donbass region is not. And they saw the country going one way and they wanted another way, not with the EU. So economically, it's really bad there right now. My friend described there's even famine. You know, they're not getting Mm -hmm. a lot of supplies from Ukraine, but Russia's in such a bad economic state, they're not able to give raw material and help economic help to that region either. So they're kind of caught twixt in between. And, you know, at the top end, you might say that annexation is coming of this region. That would be the logical game, But I I don't know how it will play out. Yeah, let's see. We're all guessing. But there are factors, not reasons. You know, because logically, it doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: Okay. Vladislav, you wanted to
5: say something? Yeah. So to to Mr. Abel, um, a few responses to that. For, there's, there's one other thing that I want to interject before we go back to gentlemen's gentleman's comments on Donbass. There is a situation happening with a lack of water in Crimea. There are some Ukrainian analysts who think that the projected shortage of water in the Crimean reservoirs, which is, which is going to make a really, really, really parched summer, this summer, to the point where they'll probably only have running water maybe two hours a day or something like that, has uh, led the Kremlin to want to take the dam in, in Kherson, which chokes off the water supply to Crimea. The Ukrainians have not been interested in giving water to the occupying force in Crimea. Most of the water to Crimea comes not from the other side, but from the mainland, that's the way the rivers run and the way the dams are set up. There there is a school of thought that says that you have to take the dam from Kherson, which would allow the peninsula to not go dry this summer. That's a big subtext. There's been a lot of negotiation between Kiev and Moscow on the water supplies, and Kiev's hands are tied because they don't want to look weak. The question of uh, the annexation of Donbass, I really don't think that's going to happen. No one actually wants the it's economically a basket case, you would have to invest something like $50 billion. I've seen the the white papers to restart the economy. The Ukrainians no longer have a state capacity to reintegrate it back into the country. And there are there are people who quietly say, just let it go. Neither do the Russians want it because the resources for real imperial revival are not there. They do sound like a billion dollars in hard rubles every month by armored train. And if they didn't, the economy uh, of Lugansk and Donetsk would look like Somalia. That's a quote from a high-level um, official in the, in, the, in the Kremlin. But I, I just don't think that there's any appetite for annexing the Donbas because I- its usage partly for Russia, is internal leverage within the Ukrainian political system and to keep Kiev from being integrated into all sorts of things like like NATO or the EU, because you, you're you not going to have this country with lack of sovereignty or unresolved sovereignty issues being integrated into in structures which make the EU or Europe or NATO have to defend it. You know, after after the case of Cyprus, the Europeans are not into that anymore. So the Donbass is... hot potato that's being thrown back and forth. The situation in Donbass is entirely acceptable to the Kremlin. And also new buildup. It's very different from what you saw in 14 and 15 because there's no plausible deniability. No one's saying from a Russian side that we're not putting troops on the border. They actually wanted to take more territory. They wanted to go back to the uh, Novorossiya project of 2014. They would have quietly beefed up the military forces' in the DNR, in the LNR, and pretended that the, the Russian tanks were actually LNR tanks, which were pushing against uh, Ukrainian state
1: forces.
0: Thomas, you. you wanted to say something? Yeah, you want to jump in?
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, the uh, the Donbass, the DNR, and LNR are simply mafia statelets. There is no other way to characterize it, and it is completely supported by Russian money. It is a costly venture, as David said, but as with Abkhazia. And North Ossetia in Georgia and previously with Nagorno-Karabakh, as with the Transnister, there is a pattern of setting up these uh, no man's lands in various former Soviet republics that can be used to destabilize, also prevent the movement of uh, as uh, Vladislav said, a movement toward, uh, toward any kind of European integration because you have this, A, you have this big problem, and besides, you do have this requirement for control of your own borders. And in fact, I mean, if, the, if you wanted to be bold, if Zelensky wanted to be bold, he would say, fine, okay, Ukraine now runs along the current control line and everything to the east is not our problem anymore. I mean, there was an argument in the past that, well, this is producing coal and all, I mean, it has this industrial center? that's gone. There is no positive economic benefit to this. And then declare a year of, uh, as happened after, say, World War I, with the creation of all the Wilsonian post-World War I states, okay, now you have two years and you, everyone moved to where they want to go. And so we can invite you Ukrainians home. But on the other hand, we're giving this up. That would probably be one way to really do a number on the Russians, but they just want to have this major source of instability where their Russian troops can use Russian tanks and howitzers to pummel Ukrainians and keep Ukraine from uh, from effecting serious reforms because they're so hung up on the war, and also keep Europe and NATO saying, no, 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 we don't want to deal with this.
2: Thomas, I, I feel you're... It's always seemed to me the logical solution as well, to hand Russia back these poison chalices and say, fine, take the take Crimea, have fun. But, but when I talk to Ukrainians, that seems like it's a complete political non-starter. There's just too much national feeling among Ukrainians, even in, in Western Ukraine, especially Crimea, they'll never give up Crimea.
5: And also once you start giving up territory, only seven years after it's been occupied, or <laughs> is that more of a invitation to take another piece in another week or another year? It's very difficult to get the population to buy in to giving up of territory, and also it's, it's an interesting thing about the, the the Donbass. Well, the annexation of Crimea and the occupation of the Donbass. It's removed a lot of Ukrainian MPs and uh, pro-Russian Ukrainian MPs and pro-Russian political proxy forces from from Parliament. So uh, the Donetsk mafia, both on the political and the uh, and the economic Front is no longer a political force inside Ukrainian politics. The Yanukovych clan, that was Donetsk people. That was the Donbas taking over the country, ruling for a very couple of years, you know, mm-hmm. regions mm-hmm. in Ukraine every every couple of years. You have cycles where the West rules or the Southwest rules. Right. Uh, not gonna- That's what um, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, I agree. Like what Putin has done essentially is taken, you know, there was 10, 15 years ago, there was still a, a substantial pro or at least neutral russian sentiment in places like kiev and yepy Vladimir putin has destroyed that now for generations could have still been a russian ally in a country that still had strong cultural ties to russia and ukraine and has turned into a, a bitter enemy of russia
4: yeah you see that here in estonia as well among the russian population you know i deal with a lot of college-aged kids uh, have for 20 years now and there's been a complete flip And their perceptions of what's going on in Russia and of Putin himself, very negative, waiting for the day when he steps down, which is very different than it was in the last decade.
0: Can I ask just a basic question? What do actual Russians living in Russia think of Putin? I don't know who can answer this.
4: Oh. The only ones I know are Russian There's Federation uh, citizens who come to Estonia and work, and yeah. usually they're either middle or upper class in Russia, very educated, and they're universally against Putin, which is one of the reasons that they come to the West.
2: Putin is considered sort of a joke, I think, by a lot of people in Russia that he's old, he's out of touch. He's, you know, he lives in this, well, the palace that Navalny filmed, but he just seems, you know, he hides himself away from the Russian people mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. I think, but the well, he's question is, who 20, comes after
0: Putin? Twenty odd years, right? So there's also been, right? Yeah, Claire.
3: Yeah, I saw bit. a fascinating when, popular opinion just yesterday. I think it came out showing that the millennials are are almost an order of magnitude more liberal than their grandparents. On, on basic questionnaires where they measure liberal attitudes. So there's a lot going on that's generational,
1: obviously. Okay. But it's not a democracy. And if, I mean, I always refer people to go go see The Godfather if you want to see how Russia is ruled. We focus on Putin. But, you know, I mean, okay, Putin, I mean, should he have a stroke today? Patrashev will be there or someone Yeah. Not? Uction. someone else from the clan will be and there.
3: he's holding the whole thing together It would be like pulling the pin out of a hand grenade it's funny that you should mention the godfather because for years i used I, I kept trying to explain turkey to people and i they weren't getting it and i would finally say think of the godfather that's that's what's going on here and it's interesting that you reach for the same movie to describe yeah. it yeah. one of us should write an essay about the godfather
1: and political yeah. philosophy
3: because that's an important movie
1: we can write it together
5: we do have good polling on what Russian Federation citizens think, and the country has not delivered economic growth since uh, the annexation of Crimea. You know, it's, it's not a very strong system, fragile in many ways, which is why uh, uh, Mr. Putin is uh, so concerned. And it, it does seem that in the in the long term, we're going to have to come up with a transition mechanism, which isn't just like the Soviet one of either palace coups or waiting for a heart attack. That's actually the big problem with. Russia now is that it's it's replicating the, the random transition mechanism structure of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union never had a transition mechanism. You, know, you either had a palace coup, or you had someone arrested at their dacha, or you had gerontocracy. And uh, Putin's extremely, extremely aware of this. And he's been very thoughtful about this. And he's began talking about this openly in interviews in the last couple of years. He had a couple of options that he was looking at for transiting the regime to something else. Mm-hmm. But then the Belarusian uprising got in the way of, you know, one of the primary methods, which was a Belarusian-Russian super state confederation. There's already a union state, but they, they, they thought that they could just rewrite the constitution after annexing Belarus in some manner. There's the Chinese model of him just going away, but being the godfather and, and shaking fewer hands and just sitting in his palace and enjoying himself. You know, the idea that he could step down and, and some trusted lieutenant could take over, but basically, his M.O. has always been to keep his cards close to his chest, make a decision very quickly, and then implement it very quickly at the last moment. So that, that's how all the major decisions in the Russian Federation over the last 15 years have been made. And that's how it'll be made now, unless there's a palace coup or a revolution or something, which at this point doesn't seem very likely.
0: Who influences him? Like, who are the people around him that he talks to or influences him? Tomas? Is there anybody?
1: I think that the the influence is directed. I think he very much wants to feel like the man in control and be the decisive one. The problem is what is fed to him by the domestically, the FSB, the GRU, and the SVR on abroad. And so from all the discussions, the picture that seems to emerge is that he doesn't quite grasp what is going on in the world or even in history. So that when leaders talk to him, they're often amazed that he's spouting lines that really, I mean, that are so incongruous with otherwise being, say, I mean, having a rational position on something that's sort of a third party issue. But then when you talk about certain issues, then he sounds like a Soviet textbook. And also on information about countries or about issues that affect Russia directly, I don't know, it's not a consensus, but the impression is that. He's being fed stuff that just is nonsense, and he believes it.
5: Well, so- who's feeding it to him? The, the, the answer to that is that he's really gone back to his core instincts, and he relies more and more on a coterie of the Russian word is sloviki, security force guys. He relies on the people that he, that he came to power with. He's filled the cabinet and the administrative posts more and more with people from the security agencies, from the intelligence structures these are the men that he trusts these are people of his cast of mind and of course they're going to be more conservative more hawkish more paranoid so there's a feedback loop where he behaves you know aggressively and the Kremlin behaves aggressively and he's given more aggressive paranoid advice from aggressive paranoid intelligence guys or or former intelligence guys who are now in business people like sechin so you know it's actually very difficult to get information to him. There are not that many people who actually have direct access to Putin at any given moment. Hmm. There is a bunker mentality.
3: Well, pretty literally now because no She's... one's allowed to see him because they have to go into quarantine first, right? Yeah. yeah. Is it helpful, Vladislav? That's a rhetorical question. When France and Germany <laughs> issue statements suggesting that
5: both sides need to de escalate? <laughs> probably the logic from their side is that we don't want to humiliate him or we don't want to humiliate them or we don't want to uh, create i mean I, i'm not agreeing with that logic i would like to give the benefit of a doubt to that kind of uh, appeasement sort of deterrence uh, logic i don't i just don't i don't think that they're trying to make it look like the ukrainian are massing troops uh, on the border. There are people in the presidential administration in Kiev who have fought about retaking parts of the map around Donetsk, which is not under the Minsk II accord jurisdiction. But, I mean, it's a pipe dream. There's just, it, it would lead to more fighting from the Russians. I mean, it's
1: just ridiculous. It's not going to happen, you know?
3: Is there a useful role for the United States in this?
1: To make France and Germany look ridiculous... With their proposals, I, I would argue. <laughs> and I would even say that uh, the United States, having appointed now so, uh, a special envoy to deal to kill Nord Stream 2, actually has a lot of uh, leverage, because they actually can do a lot of harm to Nord Stream 2. And I suspect there's a lot of hard diplomacy going on because after that absurd statement about, oh, we call upon both sides to de-escalate, is that they've suddenly become a lot more quiet because I think they were sort of told, you know, what are you, crazy? So, so uh, following up on that,
5: there's actually no U.S. ambassador in place right now. And there certainly isn't a special
1: envoy after after Kurt Volker stepped down I mean, a special envoy for North Street that yes. was appointed by Biden yeah, this past week. Yeah.
5: It wouldn't hurt you know, to have a replacement for Volcker. Yeah, yeah. That would send a message that we care very much about this conflict. But of course, maybe even ambassador would do well. Why hasn't that
3: been more of a priority, I wonder? Because that would have been an important priority
5: if I were trying to fill because
3: out... Because they can't even
1: get me. major positions such as the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe appointed.
3: Yeah,
5: I suppose. Can they uh, send an acting diplomat?
1: We had Taylor. We had Ambassador Taylor,
5: who's great. He's a gentleman, and he you can't—you know—he you can't do it a second or third or fifth time continuously. It just looks bad when you're not sending an ambassador to Kiev and you're sending Ambassador Taylor, who was there a long time. Before.
3: And I guess the GOP is actively on Russia's
2: side on this one.
5: I wouldn't—I wouldn't
2: say that. I... Yeah, not in terms of rhetoric, yeah. at least, right? Yeah, they sure least, are. I mean, Rubio. Well, Rubio and Cruz, at least, have made noise about being pro-Navalny and.
3: That's different. I mean, they, they will obstruct sending diplomats to Ukraine. We know what stance they actually took on the impeachment and about the scandal that led up to it. And then you've got, what's his name? The go Fox back to 2016. You're who right. actually yeah. said, why, why shouldn't we be taking Russia's side in this? What is this name of this? the name? The, this uh,
2: Tucker Carlson. Tucker
3: Carlson, yeah. Why, why aren't yeah. we taking Russia's side?
2: So well, this goes no- back to why Russia is kind of, it's rational for Russia at this point to maybe do this, because they see the U.S. probably is not going to. In a position to take action,
1: Tori Newland has been has been named as assistant secretary for Europe from the beginning of the administration, and she has not even she's not even close to coming up for Congress or senatorial confirmation. And Tori Newland would be so great;
3: she'd be outstanding. Yeah, she knows exactly what's going on. She would be excellent, but that's why she's not going to be confirmed.
1: I have a question
2: for Thomas. Why is Ukraine been so such a difficult time selling themselves to the Europeans and the PR put it another way. My impression is that the Europeans do not have a lot of sympathy for Ukraine in general. And Poland, I guess there's historical reasons why that's the case. But I also get the question, if you go to Austria or Germany or Italy, people will say, well, Ukrainians are really Russians anyway, this is that's all part of
1: it. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's the uh, sort of uh, all those East Europeans as Wags and Ostunter mention, is kind of the approach that's taken. I mean, I think the most egregious case was when Frank-Walter Steinmeier said they, that Germany owes Nord Stream 2 to the Russians because of what Germany did in World War two. Mm. when in fact the right. people who suffered the most from Nord Stream 2, were the Poles, the Belarusians, and the Ukrainians, not the Russians. That indicates an understanding or an attitude towards East Europeans that has been prevalent in the auschwitz amt for decades. But also, there are rolling periods and cycles of
5: Ukraine fatigue. I'm, I'm a Ukraine expert. I go every month. There are a lot of people in the European structures and diplomacy who are very, very, very cognizant of the risks and the problems and the security issues for the European Union down the line, but who say, look, uh, the Ukrainians have not been doing enough. You just have to take them by the hair and push them into the future to get them to do anything on uh, anti-corruption. And of course, there's been a lot, a lot of progress in the last seven years, not as much as people had hoped for, because these are tractable, very difficult to solve problems. But, you know, there there is a lot of fatigue in both Europe and in Washington, D.C. with Kiev. You know, all the, all the conspiracy theories in 2016 and 20 elections, all the oligarchs who are doing bad things in American elections. I mean, I understand that if I wasn't, let's say, from that part of the world and very deeply Connected to it as I am because of family history and professional relationships, and the fact that my wife is Ukrainian. I can understand that if I was just a a guy in Washington, D.C., in a policy position, then I would say, look, these people have done enough damage in the 2016 and the 2020 elections. Let's just let this situation fester.
1: Well, there's one more thing, which I just had a discussion on exactly this issue, but regarding Georgia. Georgia, I told Georgia, you have to realize, in 1991, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Georgia, Ukraine, and Moldova started out at the same place. Uh, I mean, in 1997, Estonia was already invited to begin negotiations because we had done so much. So you're looking at a six-year period versus a 30-year period. If you haven't gotten your act together in 30 years, it's kind of like, nah, Mm -hmm. I mean, why bother? In fact, after the last enlargement toward Romania and Bulgaria, basically everyone's had it in the European Union.
3: Well, certainly the enthusiasm for European enlargement and the belief that the EU is going to be the magical emollient that made everyone in the periphery democratic, liberal, flourishing, prosperous, and well-ruled has been completely bashed no one believes that anymore so there's a certain loss of energy there but it doesn't mean that the EU doesn't have security interests at its periphery and it most certainly does i think
1: if you expand your perimeter your your security issues become greater
3: so you think they're actually thinking of eastern europe as a buffer zone well
2: i think in france and germany that's fair yeah that's the way they think of it
3: I, I mean i i just don't know what france thinks but what makes you think france thinks that
2: at this point, i think people already see poland as sort of halfway in halfway out of the eu it's not really yeah, a... definitely
3: i don't know though i mean if you're thinking well they're looking at poland and hungary and thinking that didn't go so well more of a hassle having them in the eu than having left them out let's just not even try to europeanize the rest of this region why would they look that way for a sense of how the rest of the region could go instead of looking north at Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and saying, well, actually, they can be very good Europeans. Um, we don't quite know what, what causes some former satellite states to become Europeanized and what doesn't. Why, why would you go with the most negative example?
1: Well, they would simply say and do that, well, look at these people. They did it. Why don't you do it? I mean, in fact, it was not that we were, I mean, we were not assisted in this. We pushed, you know, they said, look, you have to take this seriously because we're, We're doing it. And in fact, we knew uh, throughout the 90s that Poland was going to join because that was what Germany had decided. And so when I was foreign minister, I said, we have one axiom. We always have to be at least as good as Poland in anything we do. And that was our axiom. I mean, no matter what, we had to be as good as Poland. So you couldn't say, well, we're not, we're going to take Poland. We're not going to take you because they had the claim to object to criteria of performance, economically corruption, all that other stuff. So that's what we worked on. Whereas my approach to Ukraine, I'll I'll do this very quickly, but I was invited in 1999 uh, by the, uh, I guess the NSC at the time. I mean, to go, I mean, just go teach the Ukrainians what you did. And I gave a talk to a room of about 40, appropriately enough, deputy ministers. And then I, I went through all the reforms that Estonia had done. And then the first hand went up for the Q&A and the deputy minister says, well, we can't do what you did because you're a small country. We're a big country. Second hand goes up. You're an idiot, the first minister. It has nothing to do with size. That's has to do with their Protestant and we're Orthodox. And then the third one says, you're both idiots because they were occupied by the Soviets only for 50 years, and we were occupied for 70 years. And our grandmothers, they had grandmothers who tell them about what it was like. And the rest of Q&A was an argument between different factions on why Ukraine could not reform.
3: Protestant versus Orthodox does explain a lot.
1: I mean... If your main argument is why you cannot do something, you will not do it.
5: Yeah, but unlike you, we in Kiev did not start thinking about transitioning to national democratic structures and post-Soviet structures until 2014. There was no state building. There was building of institutions somewhat, but there was no... Push to reformat the Soviet socialist Ukrainian structures into into Ukrainian national structures. They just they they rebranded the flag and the national anthem, but they didn't do anything for about twenty four years about making the state evolve in a different direction. It was just on autopilot dealing with its own internal contradictions and poverty and issues and whatever you know.
1: So, I don't argue, but if you look looked at from the capital from Berlin and Paris and the other capitals, they go well. No, I mean, they're not doing it. Why should we care?
3: Why should we care that Ukraine has been invaded by Russia? No. Or why no. should we why care? that we put them into the EU? Right. There are two different questions. They're very different questions. Yeah. And the first has a really obvious answer.
1: That's more of a NATO question.
3: What should NATO be doing?
1: It should be bringing, look, if Turkey can be in, uh, in NATO, then why can't Ukraine be in NATO?
3: Well, no one's very happy that Turkey's in NATO now. Although, I mean... <laughs> That's not true. They are happy that Turkey's in NATO because it means at least Turkey's not at least Turkey's not an outright enemy and you can if that area if that region is going to be occupied by people they'd better be at least halfway friendly to us. But I don't think anyone would now say, well we've got to have Turkey come into NATO.
1: Yeah, I'm, my only point is that Turkey was taken in when it was pretty much of a mess, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, a mess. Yeah. I, I suppose I mean all, a lot all of Europe was a mess at that point. So would you
4: say that Ukraine is in a much stronger position militarily than it has been in the past?
5: Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's absolutely the truth. They, they've built some tremendous military capacity in, in the last seven years, they, they basically did not have a functioning military in 2014. Partly because that was by design, like, let's say three out of seven guys in the intelligence structures were, were Russian assets or agents, the country had been plundered. And the corruption had seeped into the military. There, there were there were just no functioning tanks in two thousand and fourteen. The bases were uh, in the wrong side of a country to fight the Russians because they would built to fight other people, not an invasion coming from the other side of a country. The military was in a decrepit, sad state. We have helped the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians helped themselves build a formidable, relatively speaking military machine, which, which could defeat most other European armies outside of the Russians, head-on-head co- combat in the last seven years. That's the reason they still have a state, and that's the reason that they have not lost more and more territory. They've done a tremendous job of building deterrence as as much as could be expected in, in a very bad situation. So yeah, they do have a great military now.
4: Does anybody know what the NATO presence is in Ukraine? I know they've been doing drills with the Ukrainian army, but do they have any kind of semi-permanent presence?
1: Advisory, advisory. advisory. just advisory. Okay, advisory.
5: they're not the, the Americans are not allowed into the eastern part of the country. They're not allowed past the I think the Dnieper River, might even be past Kiev. Whenever I see Americans at the American servicemen at Kiev at the airport, they're always flying out from a base in the in the west. They're just not allowed to train Ukrainian army guys and the, the Canadians either. In the other part of the country, just so there are no misunderstandings about what they're doing there. And the other thing is, we don't particularly trust the Ukrainians, especially with the uh, the rockets that the Trump administration, the anti-tank missiles that we gave them. They're they're kept under American protection in warehouses outside. Well, of no leave. kidding. We don't... we
3: don't we don't want our
5: regulars going
3: and shooting down a Dutch airline. We don't want them sold.
5: You know, we have Americans guard them in warehouses uh, under American protection. They're only handed to the Ukrainians in the Event invasion. I
2: was going to say, Ladislav, do you think there's any lessons from the Azerbaijan-Armenia war that might be applicable to a future Ukraine-Russian struggle?
5: And so uh, basically, under, under Minsk II, no, the Ukrainians are not allowed to use their air force, I mean they wouldn't do they wouldn't do very well in a direct air combat situation against the Russian Air Force anyway. Let, let's be honest. The Ukrainian Air Force, what's left of it, would be wiped out. So the the main lessons of Azerbaijan, Armenia have to do with drones and air force issues, which just are not applicable with disparity in strength between the two air forces. You know, it, it's all about the tactics or the strategy that the, that the Russians would use. They wanted a full-on invasion of Ukraine, they could do tremendous amount of damage. They could take half the country tomorrow. Could
0: they? Is that the reality of their strength, really?
5: I mean, the deterrence is serious and would take weeks to take certain cities, but it would require the usage of the entire Russian army, and there would be tremendous casualties, tremendous costs, political and international, which, which is why they would not do it. But yeah, of course, if they wanted to throw everything that they have with their next generation military strength at the Ukrainians. It would take a lot of manpower to occupy the country. There would be partisan warfare. There would be uh, resistance of all sorts, which is why they don't do it. They wouldn't do it. But of
1: course they can because they have superior capacity. The cost of occupation would basically, I think, destroy the Russian state.
0: Okay. That's why they won't go in. Is that the idea?
1: In a big way. In a, in a big way. They, they're in there. War has been going on for seven
5: years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's say escalation and then outright no occupation. It'd just be too costly for them. Is that it?
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, they they missed the opportunity to win the war based on their objectives in the spring of 2014. They didn't use enough strength after Crimea. They took Crimea too easily and that they thought they could just replicate those same tactics. So they didn't use enough force to win their objectives on their own internal structure and order. They, They could have taken half the country if they wanted to use the army before people figured out what was happening. But by probably May or, or the summer of 2014, it was too late for that kind of forced deployment. So, you know, they don't actually think that they're going to get the Novorossiya project anymore. I don't think it's viable at this point. That was plan A. They're up to plan E. And they're they're playing the long game at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Novorossiya included Odessa, so which didn't happen, right? The southern coast. But
5: my, my family is from there. That's great. It's good that it didn't happen. But they didn't get there. Yeah. So then what is all this about then?
0: What are they bringing all the tanks in? I mean, this is what I don't understand.
5: To scare the Ukrainians or to ach- achieve limited goals. Those limited goals might be taking part of Kherson province or delivering some sort of snap victory against uh, Ukrainians in one sector. The Ukrainians lost two major battles, the Battle of Olivoysk and uh, uh, the Battle of Debaltseve. We, don't, we still don't know how many uh, Ukrainian servicemen died there. We have, we have rumors, but no one's ever actually figured out whether it's 1,000 or 1,500. We, we, well. we simply don't know. This is, about, this is about leverage. I think the full-scale invasion is probably below the 30% marker, but that's actually a lot in terms of potential. 30% of something happening is a lot more than 5
3: Yeah, this was the analysis that we went with at Cosmopolitan Globalist, John Oxley wrote a piece for us arguing that this is about firming up their negotiating position ahead of negotiations Mm -hmm. and further Russifying the area they do control, further integrating it with the larger Russian economy. And I think that seems about right, but I don't feel entirely confident. I'd say what you just said sounds about right to me. That's 65, 70 percent right. But the other
5: 30 percent is wild card.
4: Hmm. Okay. Things start to have their own momentum after events take place.
5: Yeah, I don't think we quite know what they're thinking in the Kremlin because the situation is fairly opaque and they're, they're probing. They routinely probe in difficult situations. And they, they put a finger in the wound and, and if nothing happens, they put a little deeper. They do this all the time. Uh, I can give numerous examples of sharp, aggressive probing maneuvers that have taken place
1: during the last two, three years. And you have a huge
3: potential for accidents and miscalculations when you're doing Mm
1: -hmm. that. right. Well, then we go back to the testing Europe and the US theory, which Mm. I think is a big part of it all to see what the new administration will do, what is the interaction between Europe and the new administration, assuming the, the new administration takes a hard line, will the Will the European Union, will Borrell, Merkel, and Macron wimp out, as they have consistently for the past three or four months, whenever push comes to shove? I mean, actually, if you, from the point of view of looking at Moscow, then the response of European, major European leaders has all been very favorable to them because they have basically kowtowed to the Moscow line. You know, and they've certainly made a lot of hay out of Burrell, sort of taking the opportunity of a visit to Moscow, not to criticize on Ukraine or on Navalny, but rather to criticize the United States on Cuba. I mean, that was like such a chef's kiss of a gift.
3: And what's the deal with him? He just seems incompetent.
1: Well, the predecessors, if you go back at least until Solana, have not been too great either, frankly.
3: No, (laughs) they go straight from being on the soviet payroll to acting as if they're now on the russian payroll and we know they uh, were on the the predecessor i don't know if I, I go that
1: payroll. far but certainly they're they're not high on the foreign policy competence scale i mean when you have people like carl Bilt and Radek sikorsky who are politicals who have been actually in office and been very effective at foreign policy completely passed over and then you snatch someone out of the House of Lords or you take a junior little socialist foreign policy person uh, in 2014, before she was named as the uh, high rep, uh, I was on the lead panel or opening panel uh, with the Brussels Forum, along with your friend Bob Zelick and Federico Mogherini. And all I did was simply enumerate all of the agreements, beginning with the UN Charter, and then with the Helsinki Final Act, and also the Budapest Memorandum that Russia had violated. And the answer I got from then Foreign Minister Mogherini was, well, so what do you want to do? Bomb Russia? I really think that there are just you can really predict
5: who in European EU structures uh, is going to be soft on Moscow based on which country they're from. Ooh, I just let's think do it's that who, yeah, it, it's a bit vulgar, it's a bit crude, but basically, the closer you are to the Russian border, the more you are concerned of these issues. Italy's not close,
3: and yet, I mean, yeah, Italy is pro Russia. Was pretty happy to have the Red Army run yeah. down yeah. the street. Well,
0: we're hoping that, you know, that'll change pretty, you know, in, uh, in the near future. Let's just put it now. Tomas is saying, no, that won't change. No. He is shaking his head and he's saying that no, it no, will it, continue I, I to be pro-Russian, really?
1: No, I mean, it's been historically, I mean, first of all, yeah. I mean, you had Berlusconi for all those years going off to celebrate along with uh Putin's birthday. So I don't see it happening.
2: Mm. Russians can be very charming people. They're very good at propaganda. They have a lot of um, you know history they can use to their advantage. They have all these cultural icons that everyone in the West admires tremendously, which they can also use
1: from the 19th century.
2: Yep, and the whole the whole are they Europeans or not? I think gives them an aura of mystery that I saw this when Poles would deal with Russians. Poles will tend to tell you they're they they do not like Russians, but if you put Poles and Russians together, you see that Poles are often just fascinated with how Russians behave, and that Russians in some way have this this Slavic freedom. That you don't find in the rest of Europe, that you know Russians can just be free to be wild people. They're crazy drinking and poetry mm-hmm. that a lot of Western Europeans romanticize.
5: Oh, the goddamn birch trees.
2: That's their event Yes. I mean,
5: look, Russian culture is part of European culture. It's important to remember that it, it is one no. of the languages of the Encyclopedia of European Philosophy. No. You know
1: what if you miss out on the Renaissance and the Reformation and the Enlightenment? Nah, so what you make it? I mean, what are who are the philosophers? I, I grew up on Lev Shostov,
5: uh, Russian Nietzschean existentialism, right? Uh, typical for a uh, young Russian-American
1: in Brooklyn, Lev Shostov. The philosophy of depression and suffering is, you know. I mean, what I would include in the canon of, of Western philosophy, Descartes, Hobbes, Locke, Nietzsche, I don't know, I don't see that.
2: But Russia but- has always been the other direction, right? Russia has always been the alternative, the idealized alternative that the West didn't take.
5: Russia was always a testing ground for ideologies from the West, actually. Russia in the 19th century was a place where a particular kind of enlightenment fought against a kind of brutal form of autarky, and communism was tried out there first before in other places, and now maybe Russia will be in the forefront of a development of illiberal democracy. Right, kleptocracy. Russia
1: mm-hmm. is at the forefront of the counter-enlightenment volume 2.0 or it's probably 3.0, because basically the volume one was in the beginning of the 19th century. Volume two was fascism and volume three is Vladimir Putin. And he's at the forefront. You know, all of us talk about gay ropa. What is, you know, this bravo, uh, nationalnost and autokratia is all back. I mean it's exactly what alexander ii was promoting and he's doing the same and just like alexander suppressing revolutions in hungary and austria the liberal revolutions in austria and hungary now he's suppressing them nothing
3: about this is european you've essentially defined european as liberal but this is a, a normative rather than a descriptive assignation because obviously russian culture has been important to europe It's like Europe's dark alter ego, and it's part of Western culture. It is not
1: at all in the mainstream of European culture that basically departs from the Renaissance and from the rediscovery of Lucretius.
5: Literature does. I mean, I'll I'll take your argument on philosophy about uh, having studied philosophy at university. I I would argue and argue and argue, but yeah, you're right on that. It's not a main branch of European
1: philosophy, but literature, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. I'm not arguing
2: that. I think that's Russia's strength when they are trying to seduce Western Europeans, though, that they are not quite European. They're a little bit outside of Europe, and that's what gives them a special power that then Europeans are fascinated by.
1: Someone once said to me about 35 years ago, there are two kinds of people who study Russia and their approaches are are diametrically opposed. The people who study Russian history and the people who study Russian literature.
2: I studied Russian literature, some on the other side.
1: (laughs) No, the writers, they, they actually read things from abroad, right? Dostoevsky, however, and this is actually what I steal from Milan Kundera, I mean, who says basically Dostoevsky's line is that morality is determined by emotions. He was driving around on August 22nd in um, 1968 in the Bohemian or Moravian countryside, and a Russian tank is, comes up in front of him, orders him out, checks his papers, and then a Russian major hugs him and said, we invaded you because we love you and then he said this is the fate of eastern europe today it's being in the embrace of the russian major who in a tank who invade you because he loves you okay but look we don't want to orientalize
5: a country which is it is historically 40 percent of the european land mass. putinism is not a priori predetermined a lot of bad things happened in the 90s things could have turned out in a different way obviously it was very difficult there were a lot of Things that went wrong, and probably the chances of Russia emerging as a liberal democracy were below 10%. Everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong, and Putinism is a response to the 90s. I mean, I'm I'm, at a, I'm in Georgia now, sitting in a sanatorium, and, and I'm hanging out with all these Russians from Moscow and uh, Novosibirsk. Last night, at dinner, a dinner of a Russian guy who's a middle manager at some uh, Italian company in Moscow. I asked him, so what about Putin, all this, and the corruption, and the elites? And he says to me, look, I'm a guy, I do business, I go home at six o'clock, I go to the bar, I have some sausage with my friends and a beer. As long as the price of the sausage and the beer doesn't go up, I'm okay with Putin. You know, there were really bad 10 years in between 1991 and 2000, and millions and millions of people have died earlier than they should have because of very bad decisions taken by the elite because of a ridiculously farcically bad decommunization process and transition process. And these are traumatized people who say, no, I don't want that again. I I want security. And if I have to allow a mendacious structure led by intelligence people to make me live in a partially free society, I'll take it as long as the beer and the sausage does not increase in price after six o'clock.
0: So nobody cares about Navalny? Is this what you're all
1: saying? Inside Russia? Yeah. We all care about Navalny.
5: But do the Russians care about Navalny? Some people do. I think the the fact that he came back uh, after being poisoned directly to Moscow uh, garnered him tremendous respect, respect amongst maybe 20% of a population. He's a real mujik. Even people who don't want to particularly vote for him say, well, look, this guy came back. He's getting thrown into basically a penal colony, which is basically a gulag-style prison. It really restarted the opposition across the uh, regions in a way that hadn't been there before. So, you know, he's a real political force. He is a dynamite uh, work of nature. He's heroic. He's good-looking.
0: Is he going to get to the election? I mean, is he going to survive? Or is he going to die before September? And then what happens? What will happen to the opposition? Haven't they just Hasn't Putin just created a martyr? Will that have any effect whatsoever in September or not?
5: Well, I, I don't want to make predictions about the gentleman's health. I'm not a doctor and I, I haven't seen him. Uh, he probably has tuberculosis now based on the reports. He is not in great shape. There will be very serious health consequences to being in that kind of environment, no matter mm. what happens. But he's out of the game as a political leader. The Russian opposition will need to grow other political leaders. There's a crackdown on them from mm. the authorities, from the
1: second-tier leaders. I, I don't know what will happen. I interrupt. I have to go. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. We have to write that essay.
2: Russian history versus Russian literature.
1: No, no, we have to write the one on uh, Mario Puzo as the ultimate. Yeah, uh...
3: that's a good nice. essay. That's Let's write good. that together because that's it's a good book. It's an underappreciated. No, book. what it is, it? is this about Mario Puzo? What the the Godfather? The yeah, no, no, I know, I know, but as what? A useful way to understand what a competitive authoritarian state really is like <laughs> to get the feeling in a way that's policy yeah. relevant, as they put it in Washington.
1: The problem is, I read Mario Puzo when I was 13. So that's like a long, 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 long time ago.
3: The book made a big impression on me. Yeah. All
1: right. We'll we'll write that. Okay. In fact, you know what I'll do? I'll order the book right now. You will be spellbound. No, but I know 54 years ago, I read the book.
3: Yeah, I know. You'll be spellbound all over again.
1: I was looking for the dirty parts.
3: Sonny and the Bridesmaid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Chapter four.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I can't wait. I'm going to order right away. Anyway, okay. (laughs) Have a wonderful weekend, guys. All right.
0: Bye, Tomas. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye,
4: President.
1: Twitter. Bye.
4: So I have a uh, question. Well, first a statement, then a question. Uh, Back to Navalny. I went to a rally for Navalny in Tallinn a couple months ago, a month or so ago, when he was going back to Russia and was arrested and um, it was in Freedom Square in Tallinn's old town. And I was surprised how many people showed up for it. Uh, the square was probably half full if you've been there. And uh, of course, there were the general group of Estonians who protest anything that Russia is doing. The ones that have been doing so since the 90s. But uh, And those are maybe 20 or 30 people. But the rest were Russian, local Russians. And... Very young, and mm-hmm. it's obvious that Navalny's social media reach, you know, goes outside Russia proper to that mm-hmm. diaspora. But I've also heard that Navalny has some negative sides to him; that he might be a, a racist. That oh, he, he is just no question about it. I mean, he is okay. Vladislav,
0: <laughs> you wanted to say something?
5: Yeah, I just I just wrote an essay uh, about a week ago in the critic. I find, as many Russians do, the criticism of him to be extremely unfair. It's amplified by his political enemies in the Kremlin. It's not contextualized. He's also like a Russian Musrik nationalist who's trying to take power in a country against a guy like Putin who has to protect exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I have it right here actually. For those of you that would like to read it. Amnesty International is wrong to brand Alexei Navalny as
5: anti-hero. Amnesty is just shameful on this.
3: Just shameful. Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Western identitarian politics. Exactly.
3: I mean, Amnesty got its start with the letter campaigns for the Soviet prisoners of conscience, and now they're reduced to this.
4: Yeah, I used to write those letters when I was taking Soviet studies classes back in the 80s. Yeah, I I heard about the distancing themselves from him, but I didn't know whether to take their accusations seriously
3: or not. If they scoured Bukowski's work, they would have found offensive things said as well,
5: I'm sure. Exactly my point in my essay, Mm -hmm. Solzhenitsyn and multiple other dissidents were not particularly appetizing in every moment of their life. He said some unpleasant things uh, 15 years ago, and they should not be whitewashed, and he was not 19 when he said them, but still.
3: Yeah, I agree with you completely, 100%. And we,
5: we should resist this as liberals because this is, high, whatever you want to call it, social justice warrior, woke, hyper-liberal, progressive fascism, regressive, whatever you want to call it, the creeping mission creep of these organizations like the ACL. Yeah,
3: I mean, it also it's also just that amnesty has become so big and bureaucratized. Now they have a checklist. They can't officially endorse anyone who has said anything like this, and, it, and they're wow. no longer operating out of conscience they're operating as a big mm-hmm. big bureaucracy
5: yeah we 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 should look at these organizations that started out as rights organizations which are now spending their remit to get evil out of the souls of men we, we should we should be more careful about wh- what it is that we expect from them and we should put pressure on them as as liberals to say no this is American academic ivory tower identity. I, I couldn't
3: agree more. It's not,
5: this was not as egregious as
3: Pen writers in the United States made this big showy display of not giving an award to Charlie Hebdo on the grounds that Charlie Hebdo was racist, it, displaying first that absolutely revolting, self-righteous, woke, censoriousness, but also getting Charlie Hebdo wrong. There was not a single person there who could understand the cartoons, obviously. They just didn't understand them. And it didn't occur to them that perhaps they should find someone who spoke no. French who could help them with them. You yeah, well, utter I, provincialism.
5: I've uh, written a lot about that. That was just grotesque. These new standards which have just been evolved literally five minutes ago are being applied to parts of a world which are running completely different ways. And, I mean, try to get liberalism going before you can get progressivism going in Russia, you know?
3: Yeah, no kidding. Well, this
0: brings everything to a close, now that we've talked also about you know, about Navalny and Vladislav's article. So I'd like to say thanks to everybody who was listening. Also, a little special hello to Ken who helped us out with a technical problem that we had with the podcast. Just like to say hello and thank you. And I'd like to thank everybody else who has come along and listened.
3: Just thank our super subscribers. Yes.
0: Yes. Claire, why don't you do that?
3: Thank you, super subscribers.
0: Okay, everybody. I'd like to say goodbye and bye, John. i Bye, Vladislav. Are you coming back? Yes. Yes. Well, yes. Well, yes. And Scott. Okay. Sure. Anytime. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for having us. Okay. Thanks. No, thank you guys for coming. Thank you
3: really right. very much for coming. Okay.
4: This was
0: fun. Thank you.
3: Good. Goodbye everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.